0: Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following Pro Wrestling Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Stick to Wrestling Podcast. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. It is a podcast that features classic pro wrestling talk, usually from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Our slogan is, if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a Raw Bone and Wicked Good podcast. You are invited to join our Facebook group. Um, It's free. It's fun. All you have to do is search Stick to Wrestling, ask to be put in, and I will automatically invite you. You can also follow me on Twitter. Just search for John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. Twitter's not what it was ten years ago, but it's still free to use and If you follow me, I probably tweet about twenty times a week, so it's no big deal. Make me feel good if my understanding is you get verified on Twitter for free if you have a million followers, so I only need about another nine hundred thousand nine hundred ninety nine thousand more followers um One last thing before we get rolling. We're recording this uh, at my home in Nashua, New Hampshire. It's raining like crazy, and I'm on the top floor, so it's hitting the roof. I apologize for the background noise. And with that, I want to bring on my occasional, usual, sometimes co-host, Steve Generelli. Steve, thank you for coming back.
2: Well, it is great to be back, and I'm very excited about this particular episode because uh, we really uh, have a lot to work with today, Uh, 1983. And we're going to look at the Wrestling Observer's uh, review of '83, and also the newsstand magazine PWI's look at 1983. So we have a lot to uh, discuss today.
1: We definitely do. It's the 1983 year-end awards episode of Stick to Wrestling, and I'm not sure how many episodes we're going to get out of it because there is a lot of meat on this bone to chew on. And joining us for the first time in a while, he's been on a couple of times. Both excellent. Both times was an excellent guest the king of baltimore mr john fell john thank you for taking the time
3: oh thank you john i appreciate you having me back on maybe third time will be a charm and we'll really knock it out of the park ah, the, the man <laughs> so says
1: the king of charm city
3: <laughs> now this is this is going to be a lot of fun this is my, actually my first time of actually having a wrestling observer in my hands to read and look through oh, wow it. it's it, it's incredible it's, it's absolutely incredible. I can't wait to dig into this.
1: All right. Excellent. So let's talk about the Comeback Wrestler of the Year for 1983. John, who did you select for that award?
3: Um, you know, what's kind of odd is I would almost venture to say, like, and I know it's a crazy pick, would be someone like Harley Race. You know, he was, the, he was out of the title picture for a while. And with Vince, you know, coming along and trying to take over the world. He wanted to, you know, protect his part of the country. Comes in, beats Flair for the belt, even though he's going to, you know, drop it back to Flair at Starcade, You know, and there's the famous story of Vince trying to get him to jump to the WWF with the belt and everything. So, you know, Harley coming back and, you know, putting passing the torch to Flair at Starcade, I would kind of venture to, to go with him.
1: That That's a good pick. I really like that one. Before I ask Steve... Who his rest, our comeback wrestler of the year from 1983 was. We talk about Vince McMahon trying to take over the world. He certainly did. Don't get me wrong, but he wasn't the only one. You know, Joe Blanchard was paying between, you know, depending on what you believe, either $5,000 a week or $7,000 a week or somewhere in between to broadcast his show on USA Network. He wasn't spending that money just so he can continue promoting in the san antonio area he had shows in western pennsylvania he had shows in eastern ohio you know he had his eyes on the prize of going nationally he just didn't know how to do it
2: well one thing about him it was so exciting when he had that big uh tournament uh, which was uh won by adrian adonis over bob orton i mean you had terry funk in the tournament a former nwa world champion and uh yeah some of the best workers in wrestling in that tournament uh you know, sadly, uh, the shows that they had after that didn't really draw big houses. They were drawing like, you know, 300 people, 700 people. They weren't having these big attendances, and between that and losing that slot on the USA. Uh, Uh, network Uh, they their hopes and their plans kind of just fell by the wayside
1: well you know and it didn't seem like they really had a plan in place but it's worth mentioning that tournament once again you know we're not recognizing the nwa champion anymore they had been recognizing the awa champion as their as their world champion and now they have their own world champion so i mean you, you can't tell me joe blanchard didn't try first and i'm not saying vince mcmahon You know, said, Oh my gosh, well, Joe Blanchard is doing this and Ole Anderson is promoting in Pennsylvania. Damn it, I'm going national. Like, no, he was going national anyway, but it's not like, you know, everyone else was an innocent victim to Vince McMahon's ambitions. But, Steve, with that interruption thrown in, who was your pick for comeback wrestler of the year
2: 1983? Comeback wrestler of the year. Um, This would be somebody that that wasn't like coming back from bad performances or this would be more like somebody who was maybe a little too under the radar and then finally getting a big, big push uh, uh, and something that neither one of us uh, had expected. And probably the same with uh, John from Baltimore, the Iron Sheik. I mean, the Iron Sheik had been uh, wrestling for Blanchard and he had wrestled in Atlanta and wrestled in different promotions. And to see him end the year in 1983, uh, at the very end of the year, the final week of the year at the Garden, upsetting Bob Backlund, and uh, Dave Meltzer talks about that in this particular issue, it really shocked the world of wrestling. And it was something that nobody expected. And uh, for the next uh, month, he would be the the world champion of WWF, and and he would be a a key player in the WWF until the uh, Duggan Sheik uh, incident in May of 87.
1: That's that's a really good point about Iron Sheik, and you're right. I mean, no one saw that title change coming. If someone had said, you know, yeah, they're replacing Bob Backlund, I would have been like, yeah, it's about time. After six (laughs) years, we need something else. But Iron Sheik was not the guy I had in mind. My pick for comeback wrestler of the year, 1983, was Buddy Roberts. He had been out of the business in 1982. When he left Georgia, middle of 1981, you know, he just went back to Oklahoma City and retired. And they talked him out of retirement and he had a big 1983. I mean, Buddy Roberts was part of one of the biggest feuds in pro wrestling history. So he came back from a, a ways back. I mean, he was gone for a year and a half.
2: Yeah, he had been um, he had been such a big star in the seventies with the Hollywood Blondes and and like you say he was dormant or missing in action for a few years and and then comes back with the Freebirds and he was such an, a key part of the Freebirds since he did a lot of the wrestling uh, aspect of it and uh, yeah that's a great great uh, great call on your part John
1: well thank you very much Dean now on to the most obnoxious wrestler of 1983. This is a Wrestling Observer uh, Award, by the way. Pro Wrestling Illustrated did not have this one.
3: Uh, John Fell, King of Baltimore, who did you have? I'm actually going to go with um, Gorilla Monsoon. <laughs> not a bad one at all. You know, I was looking over what they had here in the Observer, and, you know, it, it just, Gorilla and his commentary and everything, I just couldn't get it back then and just didn't understand it. And you know, it was like it's 1983; it's not no, no longer 1963. And yeah, I, I'm going to go with Gorilla.
1: That's a good pick. And Steve, most obnoxious. Who you got?
2: Uh, let me let me ponder that just for a second. Uh, you know, you know, I see on Meltzer's list he does have Bob back on an honorable mention, and <laughs> I I think just because he was so uh, kind of whiny and like when, when they did the Harvard step test with Slaughter and I mean he took his beating like a man all right but uh he doesn't seem very championship like that last year as champion you know with the getting again the going to the singlet and the buzz haircut uh he, he just seemed obnoxious not in not in an arrogant way like Vince or Monsoon but just in, intolerable like uh, somebody you're just sick and tired of looking at
1: I can definitely see that. You know, I wouldn't use the word obnoxious for Backlund, but at the same time, I totally know where you're coming from. Like, I mean, his act was so old by 1983, I, I, I should probably warn the audience that some of my frequent targets, let's call them that, all had... Kind of bad. Nineteen eighty threes. We're we're you're going to hear some negative stuff about Bob Backlund. You're going to hear some negative stuff about Ole Anderson and George the Animal Steel. So <laughs> my worn out act is is going to be rolling the next couple of weeks. For most obnoxious, I liked Tommy Rich in nineteen eighty one when I first started getting Georgia. I liked him in nineteen eighty two. By nineteen eighty three, he had gained a lot of weight. And his his act had gotten old with me as far as, you know, coming out there, talk about getting fired up and all that stuff. And it was the <laughs> same interview over and over again. The feud with Buzz Sawyer, I mean, I was beyond tired of it. And, you know, here's Tommy Rich just comes out screaming incoherently every week. I went with Tommy Rich. And by the way, I, I want to point out to everyone, when it comes to these awards, at least what I did, if the bigger the stage you have the more the better a chance you're going to get one of these awards if you're wrestling for i don't know tomco in vancouver i have no idea what happened out there so i'm not (laughs) going to vote for any of it but if you are on national television for two hours every week, you know, and Tommy Rich was always part of that program. You you know, more spotlight is going to get you more awards. So that's how it went for me. Anyway, most unimproved, the wrestler who took the biggest step back from January 1st, 1983 through January 1st, 1984. John Fell, in your opinion, who is the most unimproved?
3: Uh I'm going to have to go with, it's just, it's a crazy, crazy pick, but I'm going to go with Dusty. And the reason why I'm going with Dusty is that in 83, you know, Dusty was once again, he was in Florida. He had his run as the Midnight Rider, um, you know, which was kind of a neat deal or whatever. But at that point, Dusty had done nothing really to freshen himself up other than at one point, I think there was a picture where he was wearing all leather. Like he just came from like a Kiss concert or something, but <laughs> but other than that, yeah, Dusty at that point was kind of just to me a bit stale. You know, he had had that major run going from seventy four to eighty three. You know, he was really hot in the late seventies, but by eighty three, you know, he was kind of heavy set and doing the same thing. So I'm I'm gonna go with Dusty.
1: John, you took the words right out of my mouth. I don't have Dusty for most unimproved. However, when we talk about the worst promotion in 1983, I mean, spoiler alert, I'm going to give Florida an honorable honorable mention because, and for the exact same reasons that you cited, Dusty had been the top guy in Florida since 75-ish. And he had done everything a guy could possibly do in that state, and it was time for something else. And a year later, 1984, Dusty moved on, and it was past time by then. But I think that's a really good pick. Steve, what about you?
2: So for most unimproved, forgive me for being repetitive here. I I think I'm going to have to go with Bob Backlund because in in 82, he still had some of the – um you know the good characteristics what made him the champion to begin with i think eighty two is when he started using the cross face chicken wing he uh was still a credible champion, but by eighty eighty three he just seemed like he slowed down quite a bit and uh, I know uh, you know definitely in eighty four i've seen a lot of his matches, and it just seems like he just wants to do mat wrestling and there's no spots anymore. And it seemed like 83 was when he really went downhill. And it's it's sad because uh, he had a great uh, run as champion.
1: You know, I, I don't even have like a lot of the awards I have, like, you know, an honorable mention, whether it be good or bad, I don't even have an honorable mention. Like that's how, how much Bob Backlund deserves this award. he, (laughs) <laughs> I mean he was his decline started in 1982 make no mistake towards the end of 82 but 80 but you know by from the beginning of 83 through the end I mean he just went he just fell off a cliff he I mean, we've we've talked about it before, you know, the buzz cut, the singlet, all that stuff. The wrestling business was moving in one direction, uh, like, you know, Hulk Hogan being the top guy. And Bob Backlund was going in the other directions. And like Steve said, his matches, just yeah, not all of them, but as a worker, he took a major step back. And it was noticeable. It was noticeable to me before I even really understood what work rate was. So Bob Backlund, I think by a mile, most unimproved. This is a little bit of a tough one for 1983 because, you know, the wrestling business was nowhere near as gimmicked out in 83 as it would be in the years to come. But, uh, John, who do you have for for worst gimmick?
3: The worst gimmick of 1983. That is a tough one because it's kind of, yeah, you know, you were not really, you know, can I go with a manager and say the Grand Wizard? Oh, yeah, you can. Worst gimmick. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like a the thing. It's 1983. He's wearing the the I can't remember what the hat's called that he w- a wore, but yeah, but yeah, it's I'm going to go with the Grand Wizard as a you're just kind of looking at it and saying that just makes those, that doesn't make any sense at all.
1: You know, I, I, the more I think about this, the more sense it makes either you're into the Grand Wizards gimmick or you're not. And, you know, I had been watching wrestling since 76 and he'd been on TV just about every week. And, you know, I, I mean, sadly, the man passed in 1983. But I could see someone saying that his act was getting a, a bit passe. What say you, Steve?
2: <laughs> well actually uh I uh I would love to see the Grand Wizard get into the Observer Hall of Fame and he he seems to be one of those uh uh candidates who has just been kind of like on the outside looking in and uh, I think he really deserves it. I mean, it, for his run as Abdullah Farouk and uh, long-term run as the WWF manager, uh, you know, I, I I guess I would disagree with uh, John's uh, opinion, but you know, that's that's certainly fine. His opinion. Uh, it was his last year as a manager, and he was there with Slaughter, and he was there with Mass Superstar. You know, as far as as far as a gimmick, as far as my opinion of a worst gimmick of the year. You know, I, I, I'd i hate to say this, but I, I will say that the Samoans, the Samoans oh, wow. is a gimmick. Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, they had a great career. They had, uh, you know, in, in 1980, WWF, uh, that was like a, a like a landmark year for them. I mean, they were just this dominant team. that just could not be beaten. And that even <laughs> carried over. And now when they came back the second time, and, and this is something I actually learned from reading this observer, Uh, I was unaware that uh, I think it was uh, Alpha had broken his hip earlier this year in 83, and uh, supposedly, according to Meltzer, uh, Vince would air these old matches, older matches from, say, 80 or maybe earlier in 83 – on the TV program showing them as a team but they're in fact older matches they weren't uh new matches because he broke his hip and eventually they brought in uh Samoa number 3 or uh, Samula whatever his name was and uh and that's what they did but to me that that act had really gone um, kind of like on too long it was kind of a funny ending how they wrapped it up the following year when uh, Atlas and Johnson finally won and, and uh and uh, they had the Albano hit uh, Alpha with a chair. I mean, it was kind of a funny way to wrap that up. But I, I just I just felt that that Samoan gimmick went on too long, at least for me. Good choice. Thank you, John.
1: Okay, worst gimmick. We have a whole bunch of candidates, in my opinion. The Missing Link was way out there for 1983. <laughs> oh, was three. That was a big step backward. Uh, George the Animal Steel, come on, get that out of here. There was a guy in Florida who called big daddy. And he was a baby face who did the simpleton act. He was like mighty Wilbur before mighty Wilbur. He came to the ring with a rubber duck. It was awful. The guy who would have won it had he had a bigger stage and more attention. 99% of you guys have never heard of, of, of this. There was a wrestler in central States called Six 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 and it was a ramped up version of Kevin Sullivan which Kevin Sullivan was pretty ramped up himself in 1983. This, I, he would have gotten it except then he was uh he was ma- he wrestled as Man Mountain Link or Rickton Link and then he switched to this gimmick. But my winner for this it's not the guy it's the gimmick it's it's Kevin Sullivan his whole devil worship or whatever you want to call it act is Um, I'm sure a lot of people who were long-term Florida fans got completely turned off by that. It was such a, it was different, but in a really bad way. So I'm I'm going with Kevin Sullivan's gimmick in 1983. Uh, Any thoughts from you gentlemen on Kevin Sullivan? That gimmick, I should say.
3: I think it's, I think that's a great, great choice. I'm I'm actually feeling terrible about picking the Grand Wizard who died that year, but, (laughs) um, you know, but, (laughs) <laughs> but now the, the Kevin Sullivan thing, you know, I I only saw what I saw in the magazines, and it was always the snakes and everything. Yeah. And even even as a kid, it was kind of like, well, it's just kind of stupid. But yeah, I, that's a good, that's a great choice for a terrible gimmick.
1: It was so far out there in nineteen eighty three, and they did it in a promotion that you know kind of took it all seriously in Florida. or Maybe they they yeah. stopped taking it as seriously. Steve, any thoughts on on Kevin Sullivan in nineteen eighty three?
2: Yeah, I would agree that uh, it's just uh, it, it is something that the Florida promotion is is really best remembered by, and that's kind of a sad commentary mm-hmm. when when in the '70s you had Jack Briscoe, like the ultimate wrestler, and you had Peak Dusty, and you had even Billy Graham. I mean, Peak Billy Graham in the mid '70s was really big in Florida, but now when people look back on Florida wrestling and they think, yeah, when uh, You know, Kevin Sullivan had the purple haze walk out of the water. You know, it's like that's what you remember the promotion for. It it just, it just is to me. It just seems like it's so far removed from wrestling. It it should be. They should remember it for the actual wrestling, like a Jack Briscoe instead. Oddly enough.
1: I, uh, Purple Haze, I'm not sure if he debuted in 83. No, he did debut in 83. I have him under consideration for best gimmick because I thought him walking (laughs) out of the ocean was hilarious. And (laughs) it's tame compared to some of the stuff Sullivan was doing. So if you're already doing this, that's kind of a cool gimmick. But, John, who did you have for best gimmick 1983?
3: Tiger Mask. Just because it was my first introduction. Which... Which was my first introduction to Japanese wrestling. I love the mask. I loved his look and everything. so for me it was just like, oh my gosh, this guy is incredible. And so I'm going to go with Tiger mask.
1: You know, it's funny. I, I, I never think of him as a gimmick because I'm always so overwhelmed by his wrestling style, but it was a gimmick. He had the ma- mask of a tiger and it was pretty cool. I think that's a really good pick. Steve, who do you who are you going with?
2: Uh, again, this is what I'm just kind of like uh, pulling pull, <laughs> pulling my teeth on here. I'm not sure who to go with. <laughs> For some reason, the name Cal Rudman comes to mind. Oh, but he, he's not he's not exactly what we're thinking about. Uh, no, uh, I'm just going to take a pass on this one. I can't think of like a new gimmick in '83 that really blew me away. I mean, to me, best gimmick in
1: 1983 begins and ends with the Road Warriors. There you go. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially when they got rid of, you know, they used to come to the ring with, you know, the little, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The uh, village people. Like, they they came to the ring looking like the village people, and one day they come out with these crazy mohawk haircuts and the face paint. And they they looked absolutely wild. It was like nothing. I was taken aback by them. I didn't even notice that they couldn't wrestle. It's like look at these <laughs> two guys. Wow. So I'm I'm going with the Road Warriors. Good good pick on that part. Good pick. All right. Next one, and this is a, a observer only, obviously, most disgusting promotional tactic. Um I'm not going to tell you guys, you know, if you guys want to go with disgusting, I would I I would like to lean go with going towards like worst promotional tactic, but if you guys want to go with the disgusting, go ahead. Uh, John, any thoughts on this?
3: Um <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to pick on Dusty, but you know the 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 Midnight Rider thing was was kind of lame. I don't know if that can that you know, constitutes as disgusting because I was looking through the Observer and it was saying Eddie Gilbert's neck injury, Ole Anderson advertising race and things like that. But I was saying to Steve that one of the people wrote in It says everything in Florida, especially <laughs> Kevin <laughs> Sullivan.
2: So,
3: But, yeah, let's just let's just say Florida. OK. And we'll leave it at that. <laughs> I
1: mean, Florida took such a, a step back. If you had a most unimproved promotion, well, Georgia wins, obviously, but Florida would be in the in the conversation. Steve, how about you? Like most disgusting slash worst promotional tactic?
2: Well, this this one I'm going to merge uh, both the PWI. Uh, if I'm going to, if PWI had voted for this and, Obser- and the Observer, this is what they would have went with. Uh, their their most disgusting would have been Bob Backlund going to Houston and defending the title against Alpha the Samoan, because because <laughs> they were this was a time when the after and his cronies got banned from ringside, and in the after mags this became like a civil war type thing where. The fact that that he wouldn't defend his title against, say, Tito Santana and Ivan Putsky or Rocky Johnson, He, he was not letting them wrestle the scientific stars. So that would be the most disgusting from an after standpoint.
1: I'll tell you something. In 1983... I was absolutely baffled as to why Inside Wrestling and Pro Wrestling Illustrated and The Wrestler were at war with the WWF. I, I didn't understand or figure it out until, well, years later when I started getting The Observer. <laughs> right. Most disgusting promotional tactic. I did not have a problem with the WWF exploiting Eddie Gilbert's neck injury by having Mass Superstar re-injured in the neck. To me, that's pro wrestling. Under consideration, uh, I would have the Hulk, Hulk Hogan doing the Dusty Finish uh, against Nick Bockwinkle in St. Paul. You know, making the fans think that Hogan had finally won the AWA Championship, only to you know have the Dusty Finish stick its nose in everyone's business. They had an angle in Southwest Championship Wrestling. Where the sheep herders attacked Buddy Moreno and Bobby Jaggers, and Bobby Jaggers was holding back tears on the interview stand afterwards, saying why why do they why are they bothering us why can 't they leave us alone?" I was like, "Oh, you talk like a baby face Bobby because that 's what you 're supposed to be, <laughs> but ultimately i 'm going with and we mentioned this earlier, the Southwest Championship wrestling holding a tournament for the new world's heavyweight championship and doing the thing where they invited or challenged Ric Flair, Nick Bockwinkel, and, and Bob Backlund. Well, no kidding. Oh, I'll just go to, I'll just go to Houston on that night and wrestle skip young. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it made no sense. And like I said, it, you know, to me, that was just, even at the time in 1983, yes, I got USA network. I watched Southwest championship wrestling every Sunday and I just felt like the whole thing was totally out of line. Just go with Nick Bockwinkle or Harley, or Ric Flair, Harley Race, whoever, like everyone else does.
2: It, it's interesting that the, uh, the 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 way wrestling was changing, especially in this time frame, 1983. Um, if you read some of what Meltzer wrote about. Uh, you know the NWA and and he was saying in the issue that uh you know the two biggest remaining NWA cities were uh of course the mid-atlantic area and then the Dallas area and it really wouldn't be much longer after this what well, maybe a year or so that the uh Dallas would drop out of the NWA and it's just it's just kind of interesting how uh I mean, it, it, it hurt it, – that that move hurt Dallas, and it hurt the NWA too. I mean, there were no winners there, I would say. Well,
1: I mean, it was inevitable. I mean, there's there's no – they did that. They pulled out – I want to say like January or February 1986, they announced it, and they announced that the American champion was now the world-class, world's heavyweight champion. I think it was just a matter of time, I I'm talking months before – Crockett just stopped sending Ric Flair to Dallas. So in a way that was preemptive. But anyway, best wrestling maneuver of 1983. John fell. What do you have?
3: You can't get, it's gotta be snooker snooker in the Superfly uh, splash. You know, it was, it was dynamic. It was amazing. You had this, and I'm going to go back to the six Oh five. You and Brian did, you know, you've got this guy who was completely jacked, just coming off the top rope. And, it was incredible. So I'm going to go with Superfly.
1: Uh, you know, Superfly, is that is on my honorable mention list. I mean, he had been with the promotion for over a year by that point. But, I mean, the fans were still into it. When Snooker was on TV, his opponent was down. And he started climbing those ropes. I mean, the, the crowd in Allentown would go nuts. Steve, how about you?
2: I guess I have to agree with John. I mean, um, at at the time, as a a fan, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't even really a big Snuka fan, but I have to admit, uh, I think it was the year before I got my first uh, beta machine and I I was going to tape my very first wrestling. uh, I found myself taping Jimmy Snuka jumping off the top turnbuckle on WWF Wrestling. And that was such a big thing. I mean, that was such an epic uh, moment. Uh, I think a lot of people probably taped that and uh, like him or not, he was, he was the thing back then. He really was. He
1: had a huge 1983 for mine. As far as like the, the best, the pick for best wrestling maneuver, uh, honorable mention goes to Sergeant Slaughter's Cobra clutch. Believe it or not, Bob Backlund's Crossface chicken wing. But ultimately I went with the one move that I had never seen before I believe it debuted in 1983. And when I first saw it, I mean, I jumped out of my seat. Jake Roberts, DDT. And instead, by like 86, it was a throwaway maneuver, at least in the NWA. You know, Arn Anderson in 88, you know, just DDT'd everyone during the War Games match. It was just another spot. But in 1983, I mean, I couldn't believe that move that, you know, it looked like it could legit kill someone. So I'm going with Jake. That's a good call.
3: What a snap he had with that! He would get them in there and almost do this little thing where he would slap them on the back and then just quickly just drop them on their head. Yeah, the DDT when, especially when he was wearing what it looked like, like um, like kung fu pants or whatever, those drawstring you know pants or whatever. But yeah, when he he was he was great with that thing. He he definitely had the best one.
1: Yeah, definitely. And and like you said, yeah, he did, did that little thing where he smacked the head, then he like jerked back. And when the guy's head was about to hit the mat, he like smacked the back of his head to make it even more devastating. So for, yeah. for mine, I mean, it was something I'd never seen before. And I'm going with that.
3: Best brawler. John Fell, who do you have? You got to go with the, the guy who always does it. And that's Bruiser Brody. You know, without a doubt, probably the maybe the best brawler of all time in, in professional wrestling.
1: Brody is on my, on my honorable mention, Miss. I have a feeling that like not many people are going to agree with mine, but Steve, who do you have best brawler of 1983?
2: Well, I agree with John. I'm going to go with Bruiser Brody and and I, th- I wanted to add this comment. Uh this was the year 1983 that Ric Flair and Bruiser Brody had their famous match in St. Louis at the Checker Dome and it's like a, I think it's like a 55 minute match <laughs> or it's close to an hour match. And uh for any of you uh, younger fans out there that maybe are more into today's wrestling than the older wrestling, I will say that this match really holds up, and a a lot like today's current wrestling, you're going to see in this match more, uh, not false finishes, but you're going to see more like where you can't believe that Flair kicks out of Brody's finishing move. Brody is hitting him with his big boots and uh, big knees and big slams, and Flair keeps kicking out one way or another, and it's like he's unstoppable. Uh, so I highly recommend that match. Uh, there's a lot of good wrestling in the match, and of course, a lot of good brawling as well.
1: Okay, and for mine, I, I did not go with Bruiser Brody. He's on my honorable mention list. Ric Flair is as well. Roddy Piper deserves a mention. Sergeant Slaughter had some really good brawls in 1983. But ultimately, as a, you know, someone who loved Mid-South wrestling, I'm going with Ted DiBiase. And I know I'm kind of on an island by myself there, but I mean, Ted had some great brawls and, you know, that was, he could incorporate that style with his scientific style. So I'm going with Ted DiBiase, best brawler. That's a great one. John, Most Improved, now we finally have a Pro Wrestling Illustrated Criteria Award, and then we have a Wrestling Observer Criteria Award. So using Pro Wrestling Illustrated, which is kind of like, okay, who's getting their first push? Who are you going with?
3: Well, believe it or not, in Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the Most Improved Wrestler of the year was Brett Wayne. (laughs) So. That was kind of crazy. And to round out the top four was Mike Rotunda, Pez Watley, and uh, Brad Rangans. So, but I'm going to go, I'll go with Mike Rotundo because you got to figure a year from then, he'll be winning the tag titles with Barry Wyndham in the WWF.
1: I'll tell you, Mike Rotundo in 1983 looked like he was going to be a breakout star. I mean, that, that's what I thought. I know a lot of people see him as being boring, but he kind of looked like the next Jack Briscoe in 1983 steve who did you go with
2: i'm gonna go with a guy who who i've always appreciated and is is always kind of under the radar when it comes to wrestling uh sadly uh scott mcgee <laughs> yeah scott mcgee who was wrestling in florida a lot i actually saw him in 86 working prelims for the wwf and he was outstanding he was like he was kind of like seeing like another version like of a dynamite kid, uh, you know, a smaller guy, but could work a really good style. And um, unfortunately, I think he had a major injury of some sort or a health condition, a health issue. Yeah, he and had a heart really, issue. A heart issue, and that really curtailed his career. But uh, the memories are there. He had great matches in Florida. He had good prelim matches in the WWF, but. It's a a sad uh, situation to to think of what could have been for Scott McGee. All
1: right. Scott McGee is an interesting pick. I went with for the Pro Wrestling Illustrated from the guy who, you know, kind of went from getting little or no push to a big push. I went with Brett Sawyer. When Brett arrived in Georgia, I had heard I'd heard who about who he was by reading the magazines and okay, this guy's a big deal in Portland. Now he's on the big stage, and they pushed him as a mid-carter at first, and I really liked the way they booked him in nineteen eighty three, something you're not going to hear me saying a lot about nineteen eighty three, Georgia. <laughs> you know, they, they really made it look like this guy was getting better and better by the week. And he finally beat Larry Zbysko for the national heavyweight championship. So he looked like another guy who was going to be a big star in wrestling. It never really worked out for him, by the way, this week on Facebook, uh, uh, Brett Wayan, uh friend friended me on Facebook. So hopefully Brett's listening and I didn't vote for him just because of that. I voted for him, you know, because <laughs> on screen, he was the most improved wrestler using wrestling observer, their criteria. People forget Kurt Henning kind of sucked when he first started, just like a lot of guys. Okay. But he really took a step forward in 1983 and I went with Kurt Henning. So anyway, uh, where are we on this most improved, most embarrassing wrestler, John fell, 1983. Who was the most embarrassing
3: wrestler? I'm going to go with your favorite and say, George, the animal steel. I know how much you love him and I'm sorry. I'm hurting your feelings. <laughs> <but> now <laughs> no, it, it's just awful. And you got to figure that thing went on for a few more years. You know, he had a, a, a part of WrestleMania three, but yeah, George, the animal steel, It's a whole green tongue tearing the turnbuckle apart and everything yeah that wasn't for
2: me well th- no surprise there so, steve who do you have well uh <laughs> I'm going to go with my maybe uh, somebody who was always my second favorite wrestler of all time superstar Billy Graham. Uh, I, I actually I actually saw him uh, wrestle Backlund in October of 82 in my hometown Binghamton and it was it was not okay match. It was it was not not a great match at, at all. It was not even really that good, but it was your standard, you know, 10-13 minute match and they went through their paces. But from the matches I've seen in Billy in 83, I mean, he had a match with Rocky Johnson at the Garden where, you know, they're wrestling, and then Johnson put him in a hold, and Billy got mad, and he just walked to the back and never came back. And I think he did that a lot of the shows where he just walked off uh, in a kayfabe way that he was angry. but. His wrestling had gotten so so bad, and and just w- looking at him, watch walking to the ring, he looked so brittle. He looked so uh, instead of being a heel that you hated, you almost felt vulnerable for him or felt bad for him. Uh, he he definitely would be get my vote in this category.
1: You know, he's going in two years. We're we're going to be doing 1985 awards, and he's going to be the runaway for most embarrassing wrestler for me <laughs> because he's on WTBS. And he's just a, a face in the crowd on of Paul Jones' army. And I remember watching that and just being sad. Like, you know, this guy was the biggest star in wrestling when I was a kid. And that wasn't that long ago. That was eight years ago. He was WWF champion. And now, like I said, another face in the crowd. No surprise. My most embarrassing wrestler is George the Animal Steel. I think I've told the story on the show before. I'm watching WWF wrestling in early, I want to say spring, 1983. And Vince McMahon says, I'm making his return to the World Wrestling Federation. And like that moment always gave me goosebumps. Like who's coming <laughs> back? Who's debuting? <laughs> Batting down the hatches. It's George, the animal steel. I mean, this happened 40 years ago. And I still, I have PTSD for this. (laughs) It's it's like, you know, it just dawns on me, like brick by brick, this guy's going to be taking up television time for the next seven or eight months. Oh, my God. He's going to be in the main event at at the Boston Guard against Backland. Please, no, don't let this happen. Let this guy be uh, another, like, Torque Kamada guy. No, he was in the main event in Boston. It was a nightmare.
2: Let let me be a George Steele apologist here. Okay. (laughs) I went, I I remember watching, this was last year. I was watching a uh, house show from the Landover cap center. And it was, uh, I think the show was like from may of 84. And, uh, and it was like a, a, it was a regular house show, but I had a—I got the impression that the fans it, that were there in attendance didn't really know who was wrestling for one reason or another. So anyhow, like they announced, like in the ring, uh, Jose Luis Rivera, and there's you know very like no no cheers or anything, and then the announcer says, "And coming down the aisle and returning after a lengthy absence." George, the animal, steal, and the place pops, and the place goes wild. And, I mean, he's still a heel here, and even in 84, he's a heel again, but people like that act. I mean, I know maybe you and I are in the minority. We don't like it so much, but he really went for it. And, uh, and of course, we know what happened. About a year or two later, he turns baby face, and he gets more you know, mileage out of the gimmick. But I, I can see why you were tired of the gimmick by this point, John.
1: I mean, you know, the most embarrassing wrestler, I mean, it should be called the George the Animal Steel Award. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it's bad enough, like, you know, your girlfriend finds out, yeah, I watch wrestling. I, I go to the garden every month. I'm sorry. And then, then you know, it's it's bad enough when you have normal wrestling, like you have, you know, Bob, you know, Don Morocco out there doing his Don Morocco thing. But when you have George Steele eating turnbuckles and having a green tongue, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> jeez anyway, anyway least favorite wrestler john fell Who is your least favorite wrestler in 1983
3: i would go for my least favorite wrestler i'm going to go back to george the animal steel and just say that i know i'm kind of piggybacking on the uh before but yeah at that point you know you've got this guy who just comes out there and just completely out of shape and just looks terrible and everything so i'm gonna i'm gonna but I'm going to throw him back in there again. Well,
1: he's, he's he's on my honorable, honorable mention list. But, for, Steve, who do you have as your least favorite wrestler of
2: 1983? It's got to be Bob Backlund. I mean, uh, I was there in 78 when he won the title. And with each year, I just was always rooting for the heels, always rooting for somebody to come out of the woodwork to beat him. But by this time, just the whole act had kind of grown tiresome. And, you know... When I finally was told in December that he lost the title, I wasn't jumping for joy, but it was a great, it was a feeling of relief, uh, definitely. I was jumping for joy. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you.
1: This <laughs> afternoon, uh, earlier this afternoon, I changed my pick. I had George the Animal steal. And I had him, number one, because both Ole Anderson and Paul Ellering didn't wrestle enough. I couldn't stand any of those three. But then this afternoon, I was thinking, okay, who who did you really hate the most in 1983? Because George Steele, as bad as he was, the I, you knew he was going to be gone. Or at least I thought he was going to be gone <laughs> in eight months. Bob Backlund. I mean, we were trapped in interminable hell with Bob Backlund. We had no idea when he was going away. And, you know, I I don't mean to pick on Bob because I liked 1979 Bob Backlund. To this day, I like 1981 Bob Backlund. But 1983, he was getting worse and worse to the point where he just didn't have any positive characterizations. It was he was terrible and he was definitely, you know, Even though he had lost the belt, I didn't even know he had lost the belt by New Year's Eve, 1983. So yeah, Bob Backlund for me. Favorite wrestler of 1983, John, who was your guy? Hulk Hogan. Oh, wow.
3: Yeah, he was, um, you know, I first got my, you know, got a chance to see him, you know, little clips from the AWA and everything like that, and was just taken in by him. I mean, that his look and his charisma and... Everything. So Hogan, that was the first, you know, bricks that were laid in the house that, you know, I lived in with Hulk Hogan through, basically through the end of the 80s.
1: I mean, I loved early, like 1984, when Hulk Hogan showed up, I loved the guy. And like everything else, his act kind of wore thin as the weeks and months went by. But I mean, I I loved him when he first got to the WWF. And well, as a baby face in late 83, early 84. Steve, who was your favorite wrestler in 1983?
2: It's got to be Don Morocco. I mean, he um, he was back in the WWF. He, he had a major year. The feuds with uh, Rocky Johnson, the big feud with Snuka, and just the the heel stuff that he did. You know, the uh, meatball sub, <laughs> the uh, you know the the goofy stuff with Albano. Uh, yeah, he he just. He was just so great on the interviews. Uh, I, th- I think he was probably better on the interviews than his actual matches, but uh, he definitely made the WWF worth watching in 83.
1: I mean, he was great. He had the big feud with Jimmy Snooky, He had the big feud with Rocky Johnson. He had the series with Bob Backlund. He had a great 1983, and he was one of my favorites. To no one's surprise, my favorite wrestler, 1983, Ric Flair. Uh, No one else is even close. I mean, this is going to sound goofy. Ric Flair was my favorite wrestler before I even saw him on TV. I saw him in the magazines, and his charisma connected with me right away. And then I finally got to see him on TV October 1981. But, yeah, Ric Flair. And I was stunned when Ric Flair lost the NWA championship to Harley Race. I had no idea, you know if he was getting it back or that he was getting it back. It was like, you know, wow, Ric Flair kind of peaked early. But by the end of the year, he had it back and everything was good. And he was he was my favorite no matter what. Uh, let me see. Worst manager of 1983. I think I already tipped my hand on this one. But John Fell, who did you have?
3: Well, can I ask you a question before regarding Ric Flair? Oh, sure. When was the first time you saw him wrestle uh, live and in person?
1: It was the Meadowlands show in 1984, uh, Memorial Day Week in 1984 against uh, Ricky Steamboat.
3: Uh, I think it was oh May 29th. My. Oh, my God. <laughs> what an incredible match to see him for the first time.
1: It really wow. was. And I would, I, you know, I remember getting the observed when I first started getting it. They talked about the match. And they were like, you know, for a Ric Flair-Ricky Steamboat match, that wasn't a particularly good match. And I was like, what? That's the best match I've ever
3: seen. <laughs> I have never is there actually is there tape of that match? Oh, yeah. Okay, I got to I got to find that cuz uh just the pictures in the magazines I thought were incredible.
1: If you uh can't find it on YouTube or Daily Motion or whatever,
3: uh reach out to me. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to to go back. No, I just want th- I, you I like that. Better. We I mean, you
1: know, fun and natural conversation here on Stick to Wrestling. Steve who did you have oh I'm sorry I'm sorry, John. Who did you have for worst manager? I'm
3: gonna go with um Oh, I can't pick him again because he died. I was gonna say the Grand Wizard. <laughs> you can say the Grand Wizard. But I'll do the Grand Wizard, but I won't say any more. I'll take a moment of silence since he passed <laughs> away. I don't John, he's been dead for almost forty years.
1: <laughs> <laughs> too
2: soon, too soon. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's like Dances with Wolves when the guy says, you know, whatever her name. Yeah, okay, you can get married now. It's been long enough. 40 years. John, worst manager, Steve, who did you have?
2: Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Sheik Ednan LKC. I mean, he was involved in some big, high-profile matches, and and he was he was even involved in a big gate uh, on the undercard of the Hogan Bachwinkle match. It was Vern coming out of retirement with uh, Matt Dog Rashon against uh, uh, Sheik Ednan LKC and Jerry Blackwell, and and so so I mean, he did add some value to the promotion, but to me, that whole act was so lame compared to. Like Ed Farhat, or even compared to the Iron Sheik, uh, I, I thought Billy Whitewell was a lot more interesting character than, say, uh, Sheik and L K C, whoever was.
1: For me, it was really close between Sheikh Adnan L. Casey, who had a, a big role in the AWA, and all of his interviews were exactly the same, just him screaming incoherently. Uh, a guy who deserves a, a nominal, uh, excuse me, an honorable mention is Armand Hussein from World Class. I, I have no idea what they were even doing with him. But Paul Ellering was just about the worst manager of all time in 1983. He had that interminable feud with Ole Anderson. That went nowhere and drew no drew no money. All of his interviews were the same. He used big words, but he didn't know how to use them, so nothing he said made sense. I thought Ellering was absolutely terrible.
3: Was Ellering ever really a good manager? No, not my opinion. No, me neither.
1: I, I never thought he was good on the stick in Memphis or in Georgia, and then because of his back problems, he switched to being a full-time manager in Georgia, and like I said, I uh, I mean, I don't have really good things to say about 1983 Georgia. It's like, you know, Ollie Anderson couldn't find someone better than this guy to eat up all of that television time. But anyway, for a more positive award, manager of the year, uh, for pro, let's go with the pro wrestling illustrated version of wrestler a uh, manager of the year and then we'll go with the wrestling observer we'll use like two different awards two different criteria uh, using pwi criteria john who did you have the grand wizard
3: <laughs> 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 no <laughs> they had um jj Dillon actually as their winner and believe it or not their number four spot was precious paul Ellering. And Captain Lou and she got non-LKC was in second place for manager of the year in PWI.
1: Well, you know what? PWI went with, okay, let's pretend this is not a k kayfabe sport and the quality of your interviews and ring work or whatever don't matter. It's like, okay, who accomplished the most? Like, that's kind of what they went with. So using that, I mean, Dylan makes sense. Casey makes sense.
2: Yeah, and well, it, it's kind of funny that they actually gave that award to J.J. J. Dillon two years in a row. He won the prior year too. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's kind of kind of goofy in that regard. But
1: well, you know, in '83 they weren't giving it to a WWF guy. There you go. Yeah. No. So, John, do you do you agree that J.J. J. Dillon should have been PWI Manager of the Year? Did you have someone else in mind?
3: I'm going to pick Captain Lou because I just enjoyed his promos and enjoyed him being on, you know, being with. uh morocco and everything so yeah all
2: right steve who did you have i'm another captain lou guy i I really liked him i think he would even improve in 84 when the whole uh, cindy Lauper thing uh, went going i mean he was very crazy good yeah, he was really essential to that whole thing. And, uh, and, and I just wanted to make a, a brief comment about the PWI uh, picture of JJ J. Dillon as manager of the year. They they had this most, most silliest picture of him. It looks like he's wearing like, uh, either uh, a bedroom robe or something. And, uh, yeah, and he, and he looks like he's like, you know, uh, I mean, drunk or something, but it just looks so goofy. Uh, to me, that was breaking kayfabe right there, but.
3: Well, his robe says King James. you right. So right. Very, very fancy. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, all right. Well, using pro wrestling illustrated criteria by a mile, it's Fred Blassey. Fred Blassie took the Iron Sheik guy who was in Georgia and Southwest is kind of a, a mid-card guy and turned him into the man who finally unseated Bob Backlund for the WWF championship. And again, that's, that's what they used. So, I mean, that was the biggest kayfabe managerial, uh, achievement of 1983. And of course, they didn't know about it by the time they went to press. So they could, could not have used it even if they wanted to. Using like, uh, observer criteria, like who's the best manager? Bobby Heenan definitely deserves a mention. J.J. Dillon, I think, deserves a mention. He did really well in Florida. Captain Lou Albano was a great manager. Um, I didn't appreciate him enough growing up but he was fantastic he absolutely belongs in the observer hall of fame but ultimately I'm going with Jimmy Hart manager of the year I mean talk about a guy who for I mean for about the fourth year in a row had put the Memphis heel side on his back And carried it. I mean, everyone, all the top guys in Memphis were in some way related to Jimmy Hart, whether he managed them directly or just had a relationship with them. So, and and Jimmy Hart was a fantastic manager in Memphis. If you've only seen him in the WWF, you're missing out. Check out some of his 1984 Georgia stuff. Check out some of his Memphis stuff. There's a whole bunch of it on YouTube. All right. So biggest shock of the
3: year. John, what did you have? Backlund losing the title to the Iron Sheik. That's that's a good one. I mean, you got to figure, you, you know, you guys were talking. 83 was also, was that the year that um, Superstar Billy Graham busted up his belt? Or was that in 82? That was 82. Okay. But you figure he, he cuts his hair, he's got the singlet, he's just, you know, maybe it was just too much for him. You know, he's going on six years as champion, it's wearing on him, he's seeing where it's going, but... Yeah, and then all of a sudden, you have the Iron Sheik come in, and boom, beats him for the title.
1: I would say Bob Backlund losing the title, it was was a shock, but you knew it had to happen at some point. Him losing it to the Iron Sheik was an absolute shock. I mean, as soon as I, I got home, I want to say January 2nd, 1984, from Montreal, and as soon as I walk in... You know, it's like you have an you have to call this wrestling fan friend of yours. It's urgent, and he's like, "Bob Backlund lost the title." And I'm like, "Get out of here!" And you know, to who? And he's he's like, "Yes." I'm like, "Okay, Morocco, no Slaughter, no Mass Superstar, no Morocco." <laughs> I just like couldn't her. <laughs> Iron Sheik is the champion, but he he did it, so that's a, a major shock. Steve, what did you have?
2: I have to agree. I mean, uh, I mean, as somebody that lived through it and getting the phone call like you did, John, uh, uh, hearing that Backlund lost the title was a huge shock. And uh, and I would say, as I know, um, we were talking on the episode we did with Brian last about you know who should have been the guy to beat uh, Backlund finally. Uh, I think the good thing about Sheik winning was uh, it gave him the prestige of being champion, even if it was only for a month or so. But, you know, a few months down the line when they had this big, this big war erupted between Iron Sheik and Sergeant Slaughter, I think if he hadn't had that championship reign, the matches wouldn't have meant so much. Uh, the fact that he was the ex-champion and was just coming off that brief reign, I think that really added to the luster of those champions, of those big uh, feud matches they had with Slaughter.
1: Uh, you know what? I agree. I, I we had a whole show on this maybe five years ago. You know, talking about how. Probably we, the wrestling Internet community or whoever, put more thought into who should have beaten the Iron Sheik than the whole WWF brass did combined. I mean, <laughs> you know, oh, Hogan's coming in. Well, you know, back and the title to his next Madison Square Garden opponent. But anyway, if you want to check out that show, look in the archives. I think it was one of the 10, first 10 shows we did. Biggest shock of the year. You know, again, Backlund losing to the Sheik definitely deserves a mention. Uh, the death of the Grand Wizard was absolutely shocking. The overall demise of Georgia Championship Wrestling was a sad shock. I loved that promotion coming into 1983. I looked forward to 605 every Saturday, and by the middle of the year, you know, even not not even as a smart fan, as a kid who's still in high school who liked wrestling. You know, that show would be on. And I'd be like, what is going on here? <laughs> even I could see that. But the, the biggest shock for me in 1983, believe it or not, was the turn of Jack and Jerry Briscoe. And I just read about it in the magazines. But it's like, you know, Jack Briscoe's is a bad guy now. How is that even possible? So, <laughs> for and, and, you know, like a, keeping a little bit kayfabe, that was it for me. I mean, I, I was stunned.
3: That's an excellent choice, because when you think of, you know, shockers, like for me, it was a a title change. But yeah, someone like the Briscoes who were just straight baby faces all of a sudden becoming heels. That's an excellent choice. And then, of course, you had to rub it in with the Grand Wizard passing away.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those things like I heard about it from someone like the Grand Wizard died. It was in USA Today. And I was like, would that even make USA Today? I'm not sure I believe this person. And then it became official. It was like,
3: wow, he's gone. Were you shocked when Harley beat um, Ric Flair? Yes, very shocked.
1: Shocked, and and I hated it. I mean, nothing against Harley Race. I was a big Harley Race fan, but I, by that point, I had had enough of Harley Race's champion, and it's like, oh, my God, it's back. He's back as champion. You know, When are we going to finally get away from this? And obviously, it was the first time ever that the NWA championship was kind of used as a prompt. A prop, excuse me, for a super card.
3: Yeah, yeah. But it, the perm was on point. You got <laughs> to and the mutton chops, you know. I, I loved how Harley went
1: back and forth to this, like, bleach blonde to the point where it was almost white hair. And then black, <laughs> back to this, like, shoe polish black hair. It was, <laughs> I never knew what you were going to get with old Harley. Anyway, best heel. In your opinion, John, best heel of 1983. This was a tough one for me.
3: I'm going to go with uh, Michael Hayes because of what he was able to do for the Von Erics. I mean, you're only in Texas, but man, he could talk them in and just make everybody hate him. And then, you you know, you had an excellent choice with buddy Roberts coming back. You know, he took the, the, the kicking, the butt kicking in the ring and everything and, and whatnot, but I'm going to go with Hayes just because of the way that he could talk them in and people just hated him in Texas.
2: Good pick. How about you, Steve? Well, you know, I wasn't there to see that feud, but I would have to agree with uh, John on that just because of the historical importance. If he wasn't there and hadn't played that role, I mean, that's what really uh, got that promotion going gangbusters. And that's what really made uh, world class a thing. Uh, So I I guess that that would have to be number one. I mean, the WWF guys that we talk about a lot, they all did great, but uh, nothing that they did really kind of moved the earth the way Michael Hayes did.
1: All right. Uh, my honorable uh, mention list is a little bit long. I thought Jimmy Garvin was great and world class. He absolutely had a breakout year, and he I mean, just, his character was despicable. Uh, Terry Gordy deserves a mention, uh, Sergeant Slaughter, Greg Valentine. As bad as Georgia was and as over pushed as he was in Georgia, Larry Zabisco really was a good heel. He was too high up on the card, in my opinion. He should not have been the lead heel and probably the top star, but he was a good heel. He had, you know, he had that act down. It was painful for me to choose between Michael Hayes and Ted DiBiase. Because when Ted DiBiase came back to Georgia as a heel, he was fantastic and he made the show enjoyable again. I mean, he was that good. He was fantastic in mid-South, but ultimately I have to go with Michael Hayes. I mean, you know, world-class went from kind of a, a mid-major promotion closer to a Portland than a WWF to an absolute explosion. You know, Steve, you shared that 83. Observer yearbook with us, and I I thank you for that. And it said in there that Christmas night, 1983, they had to turn away 8,000 fans for their Christmas night show. And I'm just like, none of that happens without Michael Hayes. He was the heel of 1983, and Even though Ted DiBiase was every bit as good as him, Michael Hayes, you know, he was the guy who had the opportunity to turn world class around, and he did it. And I think he's more responsible than anyone, including Kerry Von Erich, believe it or not.
2: Ted DiBiase couldn't moonwalk. We know that as a fact.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You know, Hayes actually placed fourth in the PWI list. Number one for them was Greg Valentine followed by the super, or the masked uh, superstar, and then Kevin Sullivan.
1: Yeah, Sullivan they got a lot of good pictures of. Superstar, I guess, for what he did to Eddie Gilbert. I mean, Michael Hayes at number four makes absolutely no sense. I guess if I wanted to Fabe explain that, you could say, well – Terry Gordy, Buddy Roberts, and Michael Hayes all siphoned votes off of each other. But um, I mean, and for Ted DiBiase to not even go Well, then again, probably by the time they made the list, he hadn't even come back to Georgia. So I I think it's Michael Hayes all the way from a PWI standpoint.
3: Best baby face. Who are we going with, John? I'm going to go with, it's crazy to say, but Jimmy Snuka. It's, It's not crazy to say. He was dynamic. He was just... He had like the perfect body. He just was you know, the stuff that he could do, the dive the 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 dive through the ropes, you know, that he did against Morocco and the superfly uh, splash. So yeah, Jimmy Snooker was the bee's knees for being
1: eighty-three. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's. I mean, all three of us grew up in the Northeast. We experienced the Jimmy Snuka thing. I mean, we all understand it. I mean, Jimmy Snuka was an absolute sensation. The WWF was on fire in nineteen eighty-three, and ladies and gentlemen, it was not because of Bob Backlund <laughs> or the Grand Wizard. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. I think Grand Wizard didn't die of a heart attack. He died over the sadness of how much John Feldes liked him. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Uh, Best baby face, Steve.
2: Well, uh, since John mentioned about Jimmy Snuka, I just wanted to mention something that uh, Dave Meltzer had mentioned in this particular issue. He said that back in January, uh, there was a fracas at a hotel in Syracuse. Where, uh, uh Snooka's girlfriend, Nancy Argentina, got heard or something occurred. And uh, Dave mentions that this was actually mentioned in the sporting news. And I know J- John McCam, you you read the sporting news religiously. Did you remember seeing that? No,
1: I did not see it. And I did not, you know, I didn't read the sporting news cover to cover, but it was really close. And I'm, I'm surprised that didn't jump out at me somehow. But no, I was a, sub- a subscriber to the sporting news and you know, I do not remember. See, I, I saw it in the Observer when you shared it, and I was like, "Wow, I'm surprised." I, I this, this didn't come up. Uh, this didn't register with me because I would have remembered.
2: It must have been hidden uh, next to an ad for baseball types or the Dope Book, maybe. I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was probably in like an odds and ends section, which I just you know didn't bother with.
2: Right. Well, now I, I have to give uh, the best baby face to Hulk Hogan just because uh, he was the, uh, you know, the number one star of the AWA. And of course, he would soon be in the WWF. And he was like a runaway freight train at this point.
1: Uh, I mean, I could definitely see that. I have I have Hogan as an honorable mention, Snooker as an honorable mention. You really could make the case for Jimmy Snooker because of how over he was in the WWF. Uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan did a really good job in Mid-South. Roddy Piper was my number two. I had to be yeah. talked out of voting him number one because he was so great in Mid-Atlantic, and he made stops in Georgia. If you have not seen this, I'm speaking to the audience here, Roddy Piper came back to Georgia and I had had a brief feud with uh, Buzz Sawyer and Roddy Piper did one of the most phenomenal promos of all time. It's called looking for the mad dog. What a great segment. I'm not going to ruin it for you. Uh, I will. If, if you, someone reminds me, I will put up a link in the Facebook group, but uh, this one of the greatest promos slash segments of all time, and I almost gave it to Piper just for that, but in the end, I'm going with Kerry Von Erick, because again, world-class went from kind of a, you know, not a minor league promotion, but certainly not the WWF or the AWA to, you know, being on the cover of the after magazines, et cetera. Uh, and, and Carrie was kind of the glue that held the babyface side together. Coming into 1983, it felt like, you know, Kevin, Kerry, and David all kind of got the same push. And in 1983, I felt like Kerry really broke from the pack. And, you know, people ask, you know, if if not Hulk Hogan, who? And the answer would be, well, if Kerry would have had his head screwed on straight, definitely Kerry. So he's he gets my vote for best baby face.
2: Prior to the Von Erich explosion in Dallas, I mean, the, the Dallas promotion was just a place for like, you know, wrestlers to go to that were about to retire. I mean, you would see like Stan Stasiak won the Brass Knucks championship there, or Killer Brooks. I mean, they had older wrestlers older there. Brower. And, yeah. And, and all of a sudden when they had uh, the Von Eriks came on the scene, and and of course their, their peers, guys like Iceman Parsons and Brian Adias, uh, they, had, they had so many young wrestlers there. It really uh, became something to, to watch.
1: No, you're right. I mean, the promotion was so young. The Von Erichs. I mean, I don't think any of them were even 24 years old. I don't think any of the Freebirds were even 24 years old. So, I mean, it was quite the dynamic going on in Dallas. But wait. After all of that 1983 wrestling talk, we are having a an extra inning segment. We're going to talk about the NFL draft, which will have the first round will have occurred the night before this podcast comes out. If that's a thing you're, that you're not into, thank you for listening to the 1983 wrestling show. And we'll see you next week. If you want to hang out, go ahead. It's free. I want to bring on Thomas Bain, who's going to do this segment with me. Thomas, thank you for taking the time.
0: Hey John, thank you so much. Be great to be back on, even in a albeit limited capacity, but I'll I'll take what I can get, I guess.
1: This, this, limited this time, I have a big show in mind for you. I got to get a few other shows out of the way uh, due to timing issues, but I've got a big show in mind for you. But come, looking well, let's forward talk- to the Spanish slaughter Zabisco retrospective. We already did that one. I think that was show fifty-one. Sorry, <laughs> man. All right, we're gonna talk NFL draft. No, we're going to go by the Atlantic's draft board. We'll talk about like the top 10 guys. Bryce Young, quarterback at Alabama, number 1 listed on this board. It is very likely he will be taken number 1 overall, but we're not sure. But what are your thoughts on Bryce Young as a prospect? I mean, he's the top quarterback in the
0: class. Um, is he the best player in this draft in my eyes? I don't think so. But Carolina drafted up to get a quarterback at that point in time, you're pot committed. I think the quarterback pool is so, I don't want to say middling, but Carolina can't trade down now and get any value for their picks because right now to a lot of teams that are quarterback dependent, Young, Stroud, Levis, Richardson, they're pretty much interchangeable to some degree. Two or three of those guys you know, are, no one's going to say, I got to have Young, I got to have Stroud, I got to have, AR fifteen, I gotta have Levis. It, it's just whoever's there, okay. So Carolina, I think might have screwed the pooch right there, especially when you consider that Arizona was a team that was a prime candidate trade down at three.
1: So I think Carolina screwed the shots up before he even started, John. Well, they gave up a ton to get that pick. uh you know, and they have been desperate for a quarterback forever. I I love Bryce Young. I think he stands out in this uh, draft class. Everyone's like, you know, well, let's wait till next year so we can get Caleb Williams or we can get Drake May. I I think Young is right up there with those guys. As soon as he gets drafted, he is going to be the smallest quarterback in the NFL, and that includes backups. But I just loved his game at Alabama. He seemed to have that like Dan Marino-y sixth sense about where the pass rush was coming and and how to avoid it. Deadly accurate, great arm. I absolutely love him as a prospect.
2: The
0: the question for Alabama and and really especially Ohio State quarterbacks is how can you fairly evaluate them? Because they're playing with NFL receivers, NFL offensive linemen, and in a lot of cases, inferior competition. So he's going to have three, four, five seconds in the pocket. What's he going to do in Carolina when Tampa Bay's blitzing? and he's never faced a blitz like that before with, you know. I don't even know DJ Moore's gone. Who who is their top receiver now in Carolina?
1: I don't think they have one.
0: <laughs> exactly. So is he going to be able to come back knowing that his best running back now with McCaffrey gone is who Dante Foreman?
1: Probably, you know, you brought up DJ Moore going to the Bears. It's so frustrating because I think on another team he would have been one of the best receivers in the NFL, and it just never clicked for him in Carolina. It's like I wish he could try could try that career over somewhere else.
0: It's like it's like Allen Robinson now who was traded to the Steelers. He spent his entire career with Jacksonville and Chicago, with a one year stint with the Rams. And now all of a sudden it's like Pittsburgh thinks they're getting a third receiver. They're they're probably getting a fourth or fifth guy at best right now. His his career is shot and he's wasted it all with middling with with Blaine Gabber, with um the back end of Justin Fields, with, with with everything the Bears have thrown out there the last several years. So they're they're not getting a quarter, you know, the people that are you know, I'm a Pittsburgh fan, the people that are really championing this Allen Robinson trade don't realize. They're not getting the 2017 Allen Robinson.
1: Right. And, yeah, it's a very short shelf life for wide receivers, you know, generally speaking. So you're kind of middle of the pack on Bryce Young, and I'm kind of high on him. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, I think he's the best quarterback of the bunch. Would I take him number one? No, I absolutely would
0: not. Even if you're Carolina? Well, no. If I'm Carolina and I've made
1: that trade, then I have to take him. Right. Okay, I, I'm I'm high as a kite on the guy. Well, let's stick to quarterback. C.J. Stroud out of Ohio State. You had mentioned, and and you're correct that you know he has an NFL offensive line. He has, I mean, his receiver core was incredible last year. Um, what are your thoughts on C.J. Stroud, John? How how good does
0: your receiving room have to be when guys transfer to get more playing time and go to Alabama? who did that? I'm not, I'm not aware. There was a guy last year from Ohio state that transferred to go to Alabama. His name doesn't strike me right now, but he transferred and left.
1: That's that's crazy. And you're right. How, how good you have to be to, you know, I mean, how crowded, like you said, is that receiver room? If you have to leave to transfer to Bama for playing time, I like C.J. Stroud a lot. I think he is going to be a quality starter in the NFL. He has great accuracy. I like his size. Um, I mean, you know, I have the same questions you do. I have him below Bryce Young, but I I think he's going to be a quality NFL quarterback. What do you think?
0: But not to borrow from the NBA with 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 Duke guys because. Taliban chair became the rookie of the year, but how many quarterbacks have to wash out from Ohio State before they came to get gun shy? In the last decade, we've had Braxton Miller, we've had Cardell Jones, we've had JT Barrett, Dwayne Haskins. Now, Grant, some of them, you know, like Braxton Miller, converted wide receiver, but all of them, all of them did not pan out in the NFL. So what's that tell you? NFL talent around them, they work within the system, they have great athleticism. They can't convert to the next level. So is Stroud the anomaly or is he the the rule? And would you want to take that risk at number
1: two, three, four? Right. But Cardale Jones was, what, a third rounder? Something like that. Fifth round, I believe. Okay. So, yeah, we're, you know, I mean, not too many fifth rounders, you know, quarterbacks make, become stars in the NFL. You know, Tom Brady, the obvious exception.
0: But didn't he win the Big Ten championship game 59 nothing or thereabouts?
1: Something like that. I mean, I remember watching uh, the first game he played in and just being like, oh, my God, oh, the Ohio State quarterback is huge. The third-string quarterback at the time. Right. So, I, I mean, I, like I said, I'm not sure if Stroud is going to be a superstar, but I, I like him as a prospect. Frankly, I mean, I wouldn't blink if Carolina took him number one if, if they had concerns over Bryce Young's size.
0: Well, the thing that makes it interesting is Frank Reich, who's the new coach at Carolina now, has mentioned, you know, quarterback size being important. And it's all but a certainty in my eyes that Bryce Young's gonna like go number one. So is that the GM or the owner saying we're not, you know, you're taking Bryce down the kiss from Alabama water? or is that Frank Reich having a change of heart? So wh- what's what's the case going to be here?
1: It's probably the front office. I mean, Frank Young is on his uh, Frank Reich is on his second job. He probably didn't have a lot of leverage coming in, so it's probably like here's Bryce Young, take care of it. I I think it could be the possibility too, because I think
0: the thing about it too is when you look at Carolina, whoever comes in there is probably starting day one. So oh, very likely. The other thing you have to go into is the uh, the new Wonderlic test or whatever test it is, you know, cognitive ability, whatever the hell it's called. Bryce Young was in the, I believe, the ninety eighth percentile. DJ Stroud was in the eighteenth percentile.
1: That's not good. So
0: when you're learning an NFL offense from you know a crash course, because let, let's be honest here, if you're being picked in the top five of the draft, you have supreme athletic ability that can kind of trump learning the plays. Am I right?
1: Um, yes, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, I've never seen that test before, but I mean, I'm not sure how much stake I put into it to the point where it's like, okay, if he could get it done at Ohio state, why can't he get it done at Carolina? Well, think about Ohio
0: state for a second. Jackson Smith and Jigba might be the top receiver taken in this draft. Had he been draft eligible, his teammate, Marvin Harrison jr would have been the first receiver taken in this draft without question.
1: Without question. So that kind of skews things a little bit. Yeah, uh, Jackson Smith, Smith, who I took to win the Heisman back when I had you on in August. Well,
0: and and the thing about him is I think he's a top 10 pick, but you have to wonder about work ethic, heart, that sort of thing, because he, he let a lot of middling injuries, keep him out of the lineup for most of the season last year, even though they were a national title contender. I could see if he was playing on a team that was seven and five and just you know worried about his, his, his well-being, but they were a legitimate national change of contender for most of the, until, until the Michigan game, really.:
1: Yeah, they were. And I mean, who I, I don't know the extent of his, of his injuries. I think he would have gone higher in the 2022 draft than he going going to go this year.
0: I think he goes top 10. I really do. I I think one team's going to go all in for him and and, and see the potential and and make a move for him.
1: I mean, I could definitely see that because there, you know, he clearly is the top wide receiver, in my opinion, in a wide receiver, thin draft. I think we're going to see reaches at wide receiver and at offensive line.
0: O line's interesting because I think there's one guy who's a top 10 uh, talent, and that's uh, Paris Johnson from Ohio State. But then you have the guy, Peter Skarinsky from Northwestern, who I'm reading now may be converted to guard when all is said and done.
1: I loved Skarinski until I started reading that, and I've read it over and over this week that, you know, no, this is an inside line, lineman, not an outside lineman, and the outside guys are just way more valuable, and it, and it, especially now in such a pass-happy league. If you can get a left
0: tackle that, that's a fired, you know, top fifteen, top ten pick, and you don't have to worry about that spot of the ball for ten years, you are a very fortunate team.
1: You're golden. All right, let's stick to quarterbacks again. Will Levis is the. I'm sorry, Anthony Richardson. They have as the number three quarterback. When I saw Anthony Richardson play against Utah, I was like, wow, this guy's going to win the Heisman. And this guy is going to go number one in the draft. Then I saw him the next week against Kentucky. And I was like, what is this guy doing? Well, the one game that's been really
0: kind of criticized on him was the Missouri game. Cause Missouri wasn't a very talented team, but the, 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 the talent is there. The athleticism is there. Whatever team takes and has to understand their, they're drafting him and giving him a, re- a red shirt year. If he plays week one, he won't make it to year four in the NFL. He he simply won't. He'll he'll be he'll be dead on arrival. Now if they can develop him, and, and that's not a guarantee that he will do something. It is not a guarantee that he if you sit him for a year he'll come around and, and be a star. But you you have to give him the, at least that year grace period. I think, and it's not going in any mock draft at all. I think the team for him to go to is the Arizona Cardinals because the Kyler Murray experiment has more or less failed. Kyler Murray's NFL career strikes me as Johnny Manziel's college career. Where Johnny Manziel had Mike Evans continuously bail him out, Kyler had DeAndre Hopkins constantly bail him out.
1: I mean, I coming out of when Kyler Murray came out, I'm like, look, this guy has to go number one. He is so good. And now if I were the Arizona Cardinals, I absolutely would have gotten rid of him already. You know, if he's yelling at the coach, you know, calm the fuck down, calm the fuck down. This is your head coach. You get, can you imagine someone speaking to Bill Parcells like that? I mean, I would, I would have dumped him too. who would have gotten whatever I could for him. Well, here's the thing about that. The first thing, and,
0: and Arizona, you know, for lack of a better term, did it right. If the quarterback is yelling at the coach that with impunity, your problem is with the coach, John. That coach has to go if he's letting that happen. He is gone. Cliff, <laughs> exactly. Cliff King is gone. So what do you do here? Kyler has the torn ACL. That may make him difficult for trade bait now, but you can have him there on the team this year. You can have Coy or whoever the hell else they have as backup and let Richardson sit and learn. If Kyler does good, great, better, better trade value. If he, if he's poorly, you know, if he's playing poorly, you know, you, you, you take him to a, you know, a team that needs a rental for one year. Cause you have the 50 year option on Kyler right now
1: too. Right.
0: Well, I, I take that back is the guarantee deal. So you probably, you actually want him to play adequately. Well, that way you can get rid of him, but, but, but Kyler cannot, he cannot be in Arizona two, three years from now. he cannot be it because there there's no fit for him there I mean at, at what point in time you the Baltimore Ravens, for example to me that would, that would be an interesting scenario well to me, if Baltimore does not want to give uh, Lamar Jackson the guaranteed money at some point in time, the Washington commanders have to come in there and, and be in there now for Common sense purposes, the Ravens can't trade Lamar Jackson to the Commanders, just from a locality standpoint. It can happen. But can Kyler Murray go to the Commanders and vis a vis Lamar Jackson go to Arizona?
1: That would that would be an absolutely crazy scenario, but I could see it happening. All right, let's and the thing Anthony Richardson, I, I read something about him that just made me laugh. They're like, yeah, take him number one. And if it doesn't work out at quarterback, just move him to wide receiver. It's like I don't think this person should be running a team. No, you you don't take the number one pick in the in the NFL
0: draft and have a backup plan for
1: him. Mm-hmm. You can't.
0: That's got to be your signal caller, especially at number one. If you take Richardson day one or on the first overall pick, he has to either be the starting quarterback day one, or there's an understanding in the media, on the team, everything else. As soon as there's a setback, he's coming in there. You do not take him and sit him for the first 13, 14 games of the season and just bring him in during garbage time in December. You can't. That if you're a GM, you that you'll get fired. So no GM's going to do that for that obvious reason.
1: Exactly. And he's, you know, if you take him number one, he's got to play right away and he is not anywhere near ready to play right, play right away. It's going to be an interesting draft. It'll be done by the time uh, everyone hears this podcast, but I'm really interested to see where Richardson lands. I mean, you're right. It's got to be in a developmental spot where usually guys go in the second round at best third round, maybe, but he it's very likely he's going in the first round.
0: Well, that's the thing, too. Like, if you bring Richardson on your team, he can't even be the backup. Because this is a guy that can't be – think about it. If, if he was the, 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 starting, the backup quarterback for the New England Patriots in 2008 and Tom Brady blows his knee out in week one, how bad are the Patriots – even with Hernandez and Gronk and everything else, how bad are they with Richardson in the second quarter of week one? He's got to be the third quarterback on that team.
1: Oh, you're right. That's a that's a really good point. The fourth-rated quarterback they have, and they have him rated number 14 overall in the draft, is Kentucky's Will Levis, uh, who I learned yesterday grew up in my old stomping grounds of North Attleboro, Massachusetts, before uh, moving to Connecticut at age seven. Levis is one of those guys. He's got the right size. He's got a cannon for an arm. I mean, he—you know when he was at Kentucky, he could sling it. The problem is you didn't know where it was going to go. The thing about it is when you look at him, the
0: one thing that he had going for him as opposed to Stroud or Bryce Young is he had poor talent around him and had superior defenses playing against him. So you got more of a gauge on how good he could be. He had to put the ball in a window because his receivers couldn't get separation. Hence the, the, the 10 picks he threw last year. People see 19 touchdowns, 10 interceptions, and go, oh my God, how's he going fourth? Imagine if he played at Alabama at the same time. Right. That, that's what I want to say with that. So he had that around him, he had the great arm. I think he has more of a fair scouting report on him than any of a quarterback in the top five. Because you you kind of saw the bad with the good with him, like you know you know where his floor is at least. You don't know where C J. Stroud's floor really is in the NFL, do you? He looks so incredible because there was five yards of separation with his wide receivers. There's no visible floor on C J. Stroud or Bryce Young right now. You don't know how bad they could actually
1: be. Well, that's that's an interesting point. So, who do you think is the best? non-quarterback prospect in this draft. Will I Anderson. know, but I want you to share with, share with the audience.
0: Will Anderson, I think he's the, he should be the number one pick. If I'm the Houston Texans, I'll put it this way. I would take Will Anderson number two because we've already gone down this road of taking a quarterback with the top pick in the draft or top picks of the draft of Houston and having no assets around him. Ask David Carr how that worked out for his career. So now you have Will Anderson at two. You have the pick 13. It's realistic. You could get Jalen Carter at 13. You could get Lucas Von Ness at 13. You could get Christian Gonzalez. You can get Joey Port Jr. You could get a day one starter, a day one Pro Bowl player at pick 13 in that draft. And now you have two defensive stalwarts on your team, and you can build around that. And that is the team that could play for Caleb Williams or Drake May next year. Hell, you could maybe even get Head and Hooker at thirty three if you want. You could trade a second or third round pick for Trey Lance if you want to. You do not have to go quarterback at number two if you're the Houston Texans.
1: I don't think you have to go quarterback number two. I, I I'm a big believer in take players, not positions. It's only I would only take C.J. Stroud if I'm Houston for two reasons. Number one, I don't know if I can get Drake May. I don't know if I can get Caleb Williams next year. And number two, I am I'm very high on C.J. Stroud. But and that's the problem. If you draft Will Anderson and Lucas Van Ness and they both pan out, you know it's almost like worst case scenario. You're you're seven. i I'll never get used to them being there being 17 games. You know what if you're seven and ten, then you're locked out. Well, I guess the contingency plan then is you take Hendon Hooker at thirty-three, or you take that thirty-three and
0: trade up to get him, or you you trade up for trade Lance. You trade for trade Lance. You have a you have a backup plan in place for that. And if you if you take Hooker at thirty-three and he stinks, well, you know you can take a quarterback next year then.
1: I'll tell you, there is no quarterback. No player that I have cheered harder for than Hendon Hooker. I want him to make it in this league. For those unaware, Hendon Hooker is, was the starting quarterback for the Tennessee volunteers who I'm a big fan of. He, but he blew out his ACL at the end of last year. Uh, I just learned today that the doctor, his, uh, his doctor sent something out to all of the teams saying that he will be ready by the, by the start of the season. Um, But he's turns 26. I think, before the season starts. That's all very concerning. The 26th thing is only
0: concerning because you look at guys like Chris Winky, Chad Hutchinson, Achilles Smith. Those guys, here's the thing. About, Hooker will get a chance. He will get a bona fide chance. Brandon Whedon, for example, too, is is probably the most recent one. He will get a chance, but he will only get one chance. So if he screws this up somewhere and, and doesn't play well, that's it for him. So he needs to end up on a, on, a, on a team that's either, A, going to make him a backup with the intention of making him the starter, I of the Houston Texans, or a team that's going to say, okay, you're going to be our number two quarterback for the unforeseeable future. So maybe the Cleveland Browns, for example, they take him in the second or third round. So you're going to back up Deshaun Watson. And, and, and that's a job, too, where Deshaun Watson has played poorly this past year after the year layoff. Where, you know, maybe maybe you know Hooker steps in midseason and does something. He he can't go to a team like the New York Jets, you know, and, and that and that circus. He can't go to a team like in the third round to the Dallas Cowboys. Like that, that that's that's just going to set him up for failure. He and, and that's and then a lot of the NFL when you're a mid round pick or a late round pick, it comes down to who drafts you. There, there are countless examples of teams where, if he would if this player A went to the right spot, he would have thrived. Or if he went to the wrong, or player B went to the wrong spot, you'd never would have heard his name. Now think about it: if Brees Hall, who was a second-round pick of the New York Jets, if he's drafted by, say, the Denver Broncos last year, we're probably calling him a bust right now. So, it, for Hendon Hooker, he needs to go to a team that's going to allow him. be treated with baby gloves Um, and I'm not comparing it to Anthony Richardson where he has to you know sit for a year but they have to have a little bit of patience with him in terms of he doesn't have to play right away he doesn't have to play outstanding right away but just give him time and and allow him to develop
1: in the NFL I mean, you brought up, you know, players have to go to the right place. I will never stop saying that if any other team in the NFL had drafted Tom Brady, he'd be working for, for Fidelity as a, a market investor somewhere in Northern California.
0: I'm, and oppositely, I'm the same way with Josh Rosen. I think Josh Rosen got dealt from Arizona, which was maybe the worst offensive line in, the, in that last decade, that year he was drafted traded to Miami, who was god-awful the following year, and then he, just, he was basically just middling around as a third-team scout team quarterback. He never recovered. Now, if he gets on a team that can you know, thrive or catch lightning in a bottle, he's, he's probably getting a $200 million contract right now.
1: Uh, I, My guy for that is Sammy Watkins, and I will never stop being that guy. I really believe if Sammy Watkins had landed in a better situation, he would have been a star in the NFL. The guy had Deion Sanders-like speed when he was at Clemson, and he landed in Buffalo, and it didn't work out. And it looks like his career is over, and that makes me kind of sad.
0: Well, right now, Watkins, if he played next year, would that be his 11th year now in the league? Because I know Buffalo I, traded up into the top 10 to get him, and that was forever ago.
1: I think it was 10 years ago, but I'm not sure. Okay, But I, I loved Sammy Watkins coming out of Clemson. As soon as Buffalo drafted him, I'm like, oh, no. What, what did you think of the Aaron Rodgers trade? You know,
0: here's the thing. The, the Jets are getting lambasted for this. Because essentially right now, With the pick swaps and the the picks that were exchanged, it's right now a two and a three. If Rodgers plays beyond this year or the Jets make a run at the AFC East, then it becomes a one and a three, and then I think it becomes worth it because the Jets are really in all-in mode right now. Now, keep in mind, a two and a three is bad, but they have the ability to turn that uh, two into or keep that as a two. If the Jets aren't panning out, if they're playing well, they can just sit on Rodgers and 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 just say, okay, this isn't working out. We're done with you, and we're gonna because this isn't. I, and you mentioned this on another Facebook post how a team could sue for um not sue, but they could, well, they could file grievance. It. Yeah, but I think at that point time, mean, it's not affecting Rogers' money, so I don't know how they really could sue it. Though so I, I that that remains to be seen. However i think the Jets have to do something here, Zach Wilson isn't the answer. picking it thirteen here Here's the thing. The Jets were picking thirteenth, okay If they were gonna jump up into the top four or five, they would have had to given up more to get that lottery ticket than to get Aaron rodgers right
1: uh very likely yeah it it, it would cost a lot to move from the thirteen into like the top four three or four to get what they want
0: yeah so either you're 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 mortgaging your future draft picks on getting one of these top four guys who so we have no idea about you could roll the dice and get a Hendon hooker or a Jake Hayner uh or a Tanner McKee in the middle rounds or you could take Rodgers. but if you take Hooker McKee ha- uh Hayner you're starting Zach Wilson week one because Flacco's gone and Mike White is gone and Zach Wilson cannot take another snap for the New York Jets ever again that that's that's a foregone conclusion right now, Johnny. I agree. So, what do you, so at this point in time, really, I hate to say, it, Rodgers might be your only option.
1: I would have at least looked at Lamar Jackson. I mean, I, my understanding is the trade basically was two seconds and a third for Aaron Rodgers, and the uh, Green Bay moved up two spots in the in the draft. And if that second that second becomes a first. If he plays uh takes sixty-five percent of the snaps, which is inevitable. So you're looking at a first, a second, and a third for a guy who turns 40 this year. So as a New England Patriots fan whose most hated team is the New York Jets, I'm ecstatic. Two things I'm gonna refute there. Is the sixty five percent inevitable?
0: Because if you're three and six and you're the Jets and you're staring at, you know, seven and two Buffalo. You might just cut bait right then and there. Number two is with Lamar Jackson, anybody can match that offer sheet that Baltimore has, but they have to give up two first-round picks. Is that a guarantee for a guy who's, had, who's strictly a running quarterback who's had knee issues now each of the last two years?
1: I I don't see him as strictly a running quarterback. I, I like Lamar Jackson's I certainly arm. I do. I mean, the, the legs help, but I, I think he can throw the ball. I mean, I, I think it would be a—and you're right. You know, there's there's no guarantees. Everyone has that downside. I, I I would have definitely gone after Lamar Jackson. There are some other guys in the NFL, like backups, that I might have tried to take a look at. Like, I know— the Jets probably New England's not going to do business with the Jets, but I mean, if I was another team that was desperate for a quarterback, I might see what New England wanted for Bailey Zappi.
0: But here's the thing: you was, is Bailey Zappi better than Mike White?
1: About you know the same. Mike White walk. Yeah, I mean, I'm, Mike White, I think has he's one of those guys that maybe could turn into a decent NFL starter at some point. Thomas, let me ask you this. Uh, I, I said we're going to go about a half an hour, and we're there. But one last thing. Do you have a a dark horse, a a a guy that you think that might go like third, fourth round, who you think is going to be really good?
0: Oh, whew. putting me on the spot here. There, there, I mean, there, there's so many guys here yeah. that I think that could, could really go. I think the tight ends are all going to fall. I mean, you're you're reading now and mock that as many as three tight ends could go in the first round, which surprises I thinking, me. I'm the thinking none of them are going to go in the first round, but there is a guy from North Dakota State. Uh, Cody, oh Mock. goodness gracious, let me let me look him up real fast here because I, I heard him my tongue. No, 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 Tucker Kraft from South Dakota State. Okay, I, I think he might be. After Dalton Kincaid the best tight end in this draft, and now you have Michael Mayer going first round, maybe Darnell Washington, who was probably the, was the backup to Brock Bowers in Georgia, who might be the highest draft tight end of all time next year, but that's that, nevertheless. But Tucker Kraft out a South Dakota state, I think will be the guy that will surprise a
1: lot of people coming you know, in the next coming couple of years. If I had to pick a dark horse, I would take, and he's, he's pretty well known, uh, he's not big, he's fast, but he's not a blazer, but here's some real scientific stuff for you, he's just a playmaker, uh, Marvin Mims out of, uh, out of Oklahoma, I, just, I like him, there's something about him that makes me think he's going to be a really good player at the next level. Thomas, thank you for taking the time, I really appreciate it. Hey, always a pleasure, John, thank you. That wraps up part one of our three-part series, giving out awards to the top or bottom wrestlers of 1983. Can't believe that's been 40 years ago. I want to wrap this up by thanking Brian Last uh, for giving me this forum. I want to thank Luke Kippelman for all the great work he does producing this show. And please join us next week. And until then, this has been a a presentation of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.